I'm going to bring a men's message, okay? That works for the men. And uh, women, I'm sorry this morning, but you're going to appreciate it too, I think, okay? And so, uh, hey, can you turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel? 1 Samuel chapter 13. And uh, yeah, I had a great, great time with the guys. And actually, I'll just tell you this to encourage you because <clears throat> over the years, we've done a men's thing together. And then we didn't, do one, we didn't do one last year. And then this year, Riverside was just kind of doing their own thing. And so invited me to come and teach. And then uh, Brent and I were breaking it down y- yesterday. And we're like, man, this was awesome. We're gonna, CTK is going to be on top of this next year. We're like joining and going to get all our churches together and do this again because it was such an encouraging time. And there was, we had about 45 guys out and it was fast, man. It was like 36 hours in and out of there, but um, it was good. And so, yeah, I thought uh, let's do a men's message this morning, okay? So audible. Let's, uh, let's pray this morning. Lord, we just thank you for your word. I thank you, God, that... Um, I thank you for men today, Lord. I thank you that we have a church that's full of men. uh, And they're godly men. And uh, there's lots of churches this morning that that don't have men. They're they're missing. They're the demographic missing. They're the the group missing in that church, Lord. And I I just want to thank you for these guys. And... um, I pray, God, just a blessing upon them this morning as we, as we talk about um, David and Jonathan and that relationship. Lord, we pray that your spirit would speak to hearts, Lord, that your blessing would be upon uh, the word of God and that your spirit would, yeah, just encourage us, strengthen us, bless this time, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Cool, yeah, just thinking about uh, Thursday, you know, Thursday, sorry, I'm a man is going to happen, and um, it's interesting, like, honestly, in, in culture, probably the most maligned group of people right now who are being usurped and undermined is men, and so the need for biblical men, godly men, men who have a heart after God is, is massive, and I'm like, uh, really thankful, I guess, the last couple years, the Lord's given me opportunities to speak at at men's conferences and share with guys and encourage them. And it's been a real blessing. And one of the things that I think is so important for men is actually the topic of friendship and building um, friendships that are centered around the Lord. And, um, you know, I, I've told this to, the, to our church before that... Um, one of the things that's so interesting in, in my own life is this, is that my family is, you know, my mom's here on the coast, but my, my siblings, like everybody's spread out around the world. And so I don't, I don't have family to connect with. I've got, I, I'm in my hometown. I got like, I got tons of high school buddies in this town, but those relationships, as much as I love those people, that's not where my relationships have been founded and built around, they've been built around Christ-centered friendships in the church. And I I actually love that. Like, to me, that's like really valuable to think that I have strong male friendship and I think that we have that in our church. Like, for me, in our church, like, Tuesday morning, I got to tell you, is like a highlight. To come here, to just be with some guys, and we like, we talk politics, we talk marriage, we talk about children, we talk about 
don't know, cultural misappropriation. We talk life. Guys share their stuff sometimes. Sometimes it's just we pray for each other. We pray for our wives. We pray for our children. We pray for this church. And, you know, when I think about that, I'm like so grateful for the, the friendships that are forged around Jesus Christ as, with Christ as the center. In fact, in my life, what's happened is this is my closest friends are the ones that point me to Jesus the most. That's what's happened. That's what's happened. I, I could, I could, some of you guys know friends that I've had for a long time, like Al Duncan. Al Duncan, when we were young men, he's in, at Kelowna Calvary Chapel. We were in Bible college together, and our friendship was forged around Jesus. Or, or, or different people, and, and, and even men in this church, I'm just so thankful for that, because you're walking through life together, you're finding maturity together, you're, you're um, pointing one another to Jesus, and I'm like, I'm grateful that when friendships are forged around that, and you have like issues going on, and trouble going on, you can pick up the phone, and you can go, hey dude, this is happening, man, I need prayer, and your friend can point you to Jesus, and it's like, it's totally crazy, because I don't think men outside of the culture of faith in Jesus Christ have this privilege to be able to say to another man, I love you. And to have them say that back and to have a sense of security in the midst of that. And one of the things that's awesome in the scriptures is that when we turn to the scriptures and we look at the word of God, one of the things that we see is very tight male friendships. Like I think about Jesus, the first thing that he, he did when his ministry started was he gathered men around himself. And uh, specifically, we know this, we've been in the Gospel of John, like John was Jesus' buddy, man. They had like forged a friendship that was unique even amongst the 12. Where you think about Paul, Paul had Timothy. And he said, Timothy's my son. He's like my son, that's the relationship. Or he had Titus. And there's different pictures of that in scripture. And one of the ones that is so awesome is, is the picture of David and Jonathan. I, 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 look at, I look at those two men and I think they loved one another. They had a common heart for God. They had a common heart for the kingdom of God. They had a, a common heart for uh, their nation and their people. They had a common vision. And they shared a friendship and it was built around kingship and they understood what the with the throne represented and all of these things and God knit their hearts together and they forged a friendship. And I, I think about them actually, you guys know I'm a sports nut. I like fishing. Ron and I were just talking about fishing a few minutes ago. I'm glad that I'm jealous that he was out with you, Martin, but I'm glad we all get to do that. I'm, I'm like, I love sports and I love fishing and I know our men love those sorts of things, but I'll tell you what, that's not what you build a friendship around when you're a follower of Jesus. You build it around Christ and around that relationship. And, um, and I think that David and Jonathan are such a cool picture. And I think to understand the relationship between Jonathan and David, you actually have to look at the man Jonathan and see who Jonathan is and what Jonathan was about and what his heart was about. Because David, we know a lot about. We know a lot of information about Jonathan, John, uh, about David, but Jonathan's a little bit more of a mystery and to figure out what caused him to connect on a heart level with David and to, and to bond with David in, the, in this friendship. And, and so here's the thing about Jonathan. Here's what I tell you about Jonathan. 
Jonathan was a man of faith. Jonathan was a warrior in his own right outside of David. I mean, we know this about David. David was a man of blood, actually. That's what the scripture says. He didn't get to build the temple because he had blood on his hands. He was a man of war. And Jonathan was a man of faith. He was a warrior in his own right. And, and so what I thought we'd do is look at just kind of throughout 1 Samuel and take a peek at some of the, the pictures of Jonathan that we see and see how this relationship was forged because these two men loved one another. And, and so, yeah, let's go, to, let's go to 1 Samuel. You can kind of land down in 13. 1 Samuel chapter 13. And let's get a picture of Jonathan. So here's the picture of Jonathan, okay? Here, here's, who, here's who this man is. First of all, he's the oldest son of King Saul. And Saul was the... The first king of Israel, and being the oldest son, Jonathan being the oldest son of the king of Israel, it's just natural that Jonathan is in line to receive what? To receive the crown. As far as, as, far as Saul expected, and, and likely as far as Jonathan expected in the early years of his father's kingship, one day, it, they would be talking, we would be talking about King Jonathan. And so Jonathan's really introduced to us in the scripture in, in 1 Samuel chapter 13. And let me tell you a little bit about 1 Samuel 13. I'll kind of give like a... In 1 Samuel 13, the kingdom has already been established in the, in the hands of Saul. It's like firmly established in his hand. He's won a major victory against the Ammonites, the first battle that he fights. And the people, the nation has acknowledged his kingship. And in fact, 330,000 men have gathered around him an army and have stood with him. And so in chapter 13, after this great victory, he sends the, this, the, the army home uh, uh, to their tents. And he's got the nation behind him. And what he does is this, is he keeps back 3,000 men who are going to stay with him as a king. He assigns 1,000 to his son, Jonathan, and he keeps to himself... Uh, 2,000 uh, men. Now the fact that Jonathan has 1,000 men assigned to him means this, that he's at least 20 years old. Because according to the law, you had to be 20 years old before you could serve in a military position in Israel. And so he's at least 20 years old. And uh, actually that's interesting because when you think of David and Jonathan, we don't, the scripture doesn't tell us what the age difference was between them. But I actually think that it was like minimum 10 years and probably closer to 25 years between David and Jonathan. I mean, this isn't, D David's probably a kid at home still at this point in time when, when Jonathan is serving or he's, he's about 13 or so anyways. And so what happens in chapter 13 is this. Jonathan goes out and the, Phil the Philistines are ticked because they've, They've seen the Ammonites have been defeated. And so they start sending raiding parties into Israel. So Jonathan takes his thousand men and they go to a, a garrison, a Philistine outpost, like a settlement where they could watch and um, keep an eye on Israel. And Jonathan goes to this garrison and he defeats them with his thousand men. And what happens is it's like he poked the bear in the eye. He poked the bully in the eye. And so the Philistines gather their army 
a bigger battle's going to ensue. But the strange thing is this, is Saul does this. Jonathan defeats this garrison, but Saul blows the trumpet and, and he announces the victory and he takes credit for it. He says, let all the Hebrews here, let everyone here, let Israel here. Saul has defeated a garrison of Philistines. And it's bizarre because he steals credit from his son. Isn't that a weird thing? This is like a dynamic between this father and this son. That the father steals credit. And to me, I'm like, you know, one of the things as I grow in Christ is this, is like I want to give honor where honor is due. I'm like thankful for, I'm thankful like on the Sunshine Coast that there's ministries like Young Life and there's ministries like other churches, Christian Life Assembly and the Salvation Army. It's like, I want to rejoice and give credit where credit is due. When things are for the kingdom, they're for the kingdom. God bless them. Not in competition with anyone that's preaching Jesus. We give credit where credit is due. Saul stole the credit. And it's weird to me that a father would do that. You know, a father should rejoice in his son's victories. But this father stole it. And so there's a great victory for the people of God. Saul in his insecurity takes the credit from his son. He takes the credit from the man who's supposed to be one day the future king. And I just say this, give people credit, man. Honor, honor people. So what happens is this, the Philistines gather. They're ticked. The bear's been poked they, they pull together an army that has 6,000 horsemen, 30,000 chariots, and foot soldiers that the scripture says outnumber the sand on the seashore, which just means this army's too big to count. So it's massive. And what is, what is Saul got? Well, he's got 3,000 men that are kind of slightly organized now because he sent his army away. He sent everybody home, which apparently was a big mistake. And... And so the army looks and the Philistines begin to do this. They begin to send more raiding parties into Israel. And the people, even the 3,000 men that uh, Saul has begin to scatter. And all of a sudden his 3,000 is down to 600 men. And so he's panicking. And one of the things that he had been instructed to do was to wait for Samuel, the prophet, to come. And they were going to offer a sacrifice to the Lord and seek the Lord's guidance before they went into battle. And so Saul is waiting, and Samuel's not arriving when Saul wants him there. And so presumptuously, Saul does this. He, he takes it upon himself to step into this role of a priest and to offer a sacrifice before the Lord. And when it's discovered that he's done so in presumption, Samuel arrives and says, you've been a fool. Why did you do this before God? This was not your place, nor this your spot. And, and Samuel tells him, you haven't kept the command of the Lord. And because you have not honored the word of God, you have not kept the command of the Lord, the kingdom's going to be taken from you. The Lord is going to seek out a man after his own heart. And the kingdom will not stay in your family. And so this happens. The people are scattering. And so 3,000 men are down to 600 and the Philistines have divided themselves into three companies and they're like, they're like pillaging the land and raiding. And in fact, actually, if you look at the end of chapter 13, look at verse 22. So on the day of battle, 
There was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass at Michmash. So what happens is this, nobody's got a sword. Isn't this crazy? What kind of army doesn't have weapons? They don't have any weapons. There's two men with a sword and a spear among 600, and they've got a sea of Philistines coming after them. So this is not good, right? No, no weapons. And, and um, in fact, if you read earlier in there that the Philistines had taken all the blacksmiths, so they had no ability to forge anything. And so this is the situation that Saul and Jonathan are in, and it's important that we get this context, okay, that we get this picture to see what's going on here. A sea. An army that's like a sea. 30,000 chariots. Can you imagine? 6,000 6, foot soldiers. And Israel's got 600 and only two have a sword. Yeah, you got it. Exactly. It's laughable. It's laughable. And Saul, one of the guys with the sword, is already like showing deep character flaws. He's a flawed man. Like, we're all flawed men, but he's like flawed. He, he's a man of the flesh. He's insecure. He has to steal credit. He's a liar. Worst of all, he doesn't keep the command of the Lord. And he's one of two guys with a sword and spear. And so, yeah, how do you like them apples? Like, it's not, the, the odds are not good here. And so let's check out what happens in chapter 14. Verse 1. One day... Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. This relationship is breaking down. Verse 2. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of one was Bozes and the name of the other, Sena. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Gibeah. Verse 6, Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of, the of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. And if they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place. And we will not go up, on, up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hand. And this shall be the sign to us. Love it. So Jonathan says this. It's like back, back in my day at Alfie, it was like top field after school. That was, that was the line if something had to be squared out between some men. And, um, and so Jonathan, Jonathan says this, basically top field after school, let's see what happens. And, and uh, his armor bearer says, I'm with you, man. Heart and soul, 
do all that's in your heart. Do as you wish. Let's go. I'm with you. And Jonathan, you know, uh, knew the headspace of his father. He didn't tell his dad what was going on. He didn't tell his dad that he was going to go potentially pick this fight if the Lord was leading. And Saul's got 600 men with him. He's got a few priests. They're of a cursed family line. The brother of Ichabod is there, which means the glory has departed because the glory had departed. And, and Saul had no heart in him. He's hiding in a cave. And what does Jonathan do? Is he going to consult his dad for counsel here? Um, and so I would just say this, like, look, catch the heart of this guy. Catch the heart of Jonathan here. Jonathan's heart of faith and his trust in the ability of the Lord to win the battle. Jonathan had faith in God for victory. And let's check out what happens. The Lord gives the garrison into his hands. Uh, uh, we'll keep reading. Verse 11. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of their holes. Where they've hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we'll show you a thing. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, I love the humor of the scripture. This is boys, they're going to have a go. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him and they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike with Jonathan and his armor bearer which is Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men, as it were, within a half furrow's length in an acre of land. Now check out verse 15. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field and among the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled, the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. Man, God began to work as Jonathan stepped out in faith and got into the battle. And, and so much so did the earth tremble. So much so did the earth tremble at the faith of one man who was willing to step out for the kingdom of God. That these Philistines, as you read on, they begin to turn on one another. They begin to take their own swords, the enemy. And like the enemy, destroying enemy. And Jonathan trusted in the Lord's Heart to win the battle. And so much so did the earth begin to shake and tremble as we read here. That Saul felt it. Saul was in the cave and he's like what is going on? The earth is shaking. They could hear. It says they could hear the tumult. And the Philistines were turning on themselves all over the place. And, and so he takes a head count and he sees Jonathan and the armor bearer are missing. And so he calls over the priest and he says, consult the Lord. The priest has got the ephod for consulting God. And he begins to consult God. Say, God, what are we supposed to do? And it says, as he did, the earth began to rock even harder. That the, the, the Lord was turning against the enemy so heavy and so hard. That Saul actually said, well, stay your hand. Stop consulting. He didn't wait for an answer from the Lord. Because he's like, oh, well, we got these guys. We'll go out and take them. I mean, again impatient and not listening to the voice of the Lord. He just rallied the troops and he pursued the Philistines. But there was so much chaos amongst the Philistines that they were turning their swords on one another. And, and the story goes on and it tells this. It tells this 
silly story about Saul making a rash vow. You remember he goes, nobody's allowed to eat till we defeat these guys. He's got soldiers. And nobody should eat until the sun goes down. And it's like, this guy's crazy. But Jonathan, he's a man after God's heart. Now, if we talk about David, what's the military victory David's famous for? What is it, church? Goliath, right? We all know the story of David and Goliath, I'm sure. If you don't know, it's in 1 Samuel chapter 17. You can go there. 1 Samuel chapter 17. Now, here's what I want to tell you about Jonathan's victory and David's victory. David's victory is here, and Jonathan's victory is maybe there. They're not this. They're this. Just a hair underneath. Just a, just a hair underneath. Jo- Jonathan, Jonathan, I mean, we don't equate these victories on the same level, you know, because we love David. We like, we know what David becomes. We know the story of David. David and Goliath. It's like, man, I love that story when I was a kid. Like, I've told you guys the story when we were like down at Bonniebrook one time. I'm flying my kite. Got a way up windy day. And my sister said, can we hold, can I hold the kite? I said, yeah, but you got to hold tight. I handed her the kite. And she let go of the kite because it was, t- <laughs> what are you doing? You know, and the kite rocketed down towards Gower Point, cruising down the beach towards Secret from Bonniebrook. And the handle was bouncing on the beach and unraveling more and more string and the kite's going higher and higher and higher. And finally, it settled into a big fir tree up on the high bank there. It's like hundreds of feet up because the tree's on the top of the bank. And I chased that thing for, I don't know, felt like a mile down the beach. And I'm crying. My mom catches up. I said, Mom, can we pray? <laughs> like a kid should do. And, and she said, okay, let's pray. So I prayed, Lord, you help David defeat Goliath. <laughs> and you can get my kite out of the tree. And, amen. The wind picked up the kite and it came down and it landed in the beach, on the beach. We picked it up. That kite hung in our garage for like almost two decades after that. It's green and green white kite with a red tail. We love the story of, what I'm telling you is we love the story of David and Goliath and we don't always catch some of the other stories that are in the scripture. This story about Jonathan is incredible. And, and so here's, here's, here's Jonathan. He's a man who believes in God's ability to bring victory by many or by few. David's a man who believes that God has the ability to bring victory by many or by few. They shared a common, a common heart. And so you come to 1 Samuel chapter 17 and this incredible story goes on about David defeating Goliath. And we think, let let me just think about Jonathan. Like Jonathan was watching the spiritual and the moral decay of his father. It's tragic. And actually when you come to 1 Samuel chapter 17, the scripture tells us that the spirit of God had departed from uh, from Saul. And that the Lord was seeking out a man after his own heart. And, 
And once again, you come to 1 Samuel chapter 17, and the Philistines are upon the Israelites, and the people are quaking again. This time, they're shaking in fear of the Philistines. And this time, the point of the spear is coming from a man by the name of Goliath, this giant that we know about in Scripture. And when I read this, here's what I think. I think, well, why didn't Jonathan take him? Why didn't, I mean, I think the only reason, the only reason we don't see Jonathan step up and take out Goliath is this. Don't you love to put yourself in the Bible story? I love to put myself in the Bible story. Like, go, okay, I'm David, Lord. I'm, I'm whoever. Like, we like that. You read it and you, like, put yourself in the story. But in this story, you're not David. I'm not David. In the story of 1 Samuel, you're Jonathan, men. You're Jonathan. And, you know, you read the story of David and, and Goliath, and I guess you need to know this, that you're not David, you're Jonathan in this story. And here's why. Jonathan had to have a change of allegiance. Jonathan had to see the failure of his father. Jonathan had to see the failure of Saul, a fleshly king, a man after the flesh, a man who trusted in the things of the flesh. And Jonathan had to flip his allegiance from a king of the flesh to a king of the spirit. From man's king to God's king. From a man who had no heart to a man who had a heart after God. And, and that's just like you and I. Our allegiance has to switch from the flesh to our king. Our allegiance has to switch from the king of the flesh to the king of the universe, King Jesus. And that's why Jonathan represents us in the story. We've got to have the switch that he's going to have. And so what happens? Well, you know the story. David takes him out and trust in Saul. Trust in Saul was not going to bring victory over Goliath, this giant. It, it was David who had to defeat Goliath. And the same is true. You're battling a Goliath in your life. You got fleshly issues that you're fighting and battling. You are not going to win by trusting in the flesh ever. The Lord won't let you. Then you trust in yourself. Victory does not come through trusting in the flesh. Victory comes from trusting in your king, putting your hope in your king, King Jesus. And so David defeats Goliath just like Jesus conquered sin and death. Jesus slay the giant of sin. He cut off its head. He cut off the head of the snake. And we know in this story, what, is Dave, what, is, what does David do? He, he gets Goliath with the stone and then he goes over to Goliath. He picks up Goliath's own sword and he lobs off the guy's head while he's laying there. That's why this is a good guy's story. There's a lot of blood and stuff. And it's pretty nasty, but what does David do? He picks up the head and he picks up the sword. And so he's walking around. <laughs> He's got in one hand the sword of this giant, this massive sword, and in the other hand, he's carrying the head that he's lobbed off 
the body. And, and to me, that's like, that sounds like what Jesus did with sin and death for me. He like slay my enemy that I couldn't slay. He slay the sin that I couldn't get victory over. And so Saul does this. Saul calls David. He's like, find out who, who this kid is, man. And he calls David to himself and he comes into the king. And in one hand, he's in Saul's tent. In one hand, he's got the head of Goliath. And in the other hand, he's got the sword. And think about, man, if you took my head off, there's nothing to carry it with. <laughs> Maybe that'll happen one day for the name of Jesus. It'll be okay with me. So David comes to Saul. He's got the Philistine's head in one hand and he's got the sword in the other. And let me read to you the discussion that happens in the tent. Chapter 17, verse 57 and 58. And as soon as David returned from striking down, the Phil, striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered him, I'm the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. So Saul calls, calls David to himself, and he comes. Like I said, he's got the head there. And uh, Saul says, whose, whose son are you? But you know, I, I don't think that was like the whole conversation. I think there was lots going on in that conversation. Like they were celebrating victory, man. They were breaking down the video replay like Don Cherry and Ron McLean used to. And uh, they were recounting the kill. They were recounting the kill. Like Steve Renal on Meat Eater. He's like, if you watch that on Netflix, it's awesome. He, he's so fun to listen to as he goes out and he hunts. And he you know, talks his philosophy about hunting. And Saul and, 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 and David and Abner are breaking this down. Saul's like, man, I thought you were crazy. Why didn't you take my armor? David's like, it didn't fit, man, I swear. Like, it, didn't, it wasn't going to work. And, and Abner's like, why did you only take five stones, man? Like, that was risky. You could have you loaded up with a few more just to be safe. And hey, are you hungry? Can we pour you a drink? Like, this is awesome, man. That was sick. Like, that was really cool. And God's brought this great victory. And David's like, yeah. And then I said to him, you come at me with a sword and a spear, but I come at you in the name of the Lord of hosts. This day I'll feed your flesh. And Abner's like, that was sick. Where'd you come up with that line? Like, this is it. This is the thing. Now, here's the thing. Jonathan was there. Jonathan was in the tent. And I think Jonathan took in the whole conversation. He listened to this, the discussion between Saul, the fleshly king, and he listened to the man after God's heart speak. He watched Saul, and he watched David. While they were talking he took it all in. He looked over at Saul and Saul was resting in his kingly robes with the crown nicely propped on his head. A cup of wine. He looked over at David 
he saw a man with blood splattered on his face, a sword in his hand, and a head in the other. A young man. Jonathan looked at one, and he looked at the other. He waded in, and he could see. And look what chapter 18 tells us right away, verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day, would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him. He gave it to David, his armor, and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants." The key to the relationship of Jonathan and David is this, is that talk with Saul in the tent that day. Jonathan looked at him and said, man, I love this guy. I love what this guy's about. I love his heart. I have a kindred spirit with him. I love his heart for God. You know, these two, they had a common heart. They had common vision. They had common belief. They had a common faith and a friendship was born. Solomon said, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. Men, we're born for adversity. Did you know that? Our friendships are born for adversity, for troubled waters, for fights. That's why God knits men together. Christian men, men who love Jesus for battles. And when a friendship is forged like that before the Lord, it's beautiful because a, a friend is willing to sacrifice one for another. You don't have to beg a friend in the Lord for anything. I'm like, Doris, do you got a two-wheeler? Yep, here's the code to my garage. <laughs> Years ago, uh, I had my old pickup and Lisa and I had done a dump run and it was, must have been winter. I don't even, it must have been winter. It was like a day like today. And it was dark and in the evening and we had just coming back from Seashell and we came across the, the Chapman Creek Bridge and I was pulling my utility trailer, I had this old utility trailer, boom, over the bridge and all of a sudden, I see my trailer. <laughs> I get passed by my trailer. <laughs> and uh, it shoot, we're just gone, we're coming towards Gibson's and it, now, if this is your yard, I'm going to apologize because this is a secret that's just coming out of the bag right now. The trailer bounced, boom, boom, boom. It went past that first street there when you come over the bridge, and it went into the guy's yard and went boom, boom, boom. And then the tongue dug into the ground, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. And it was under the cover of dark. It was like, it was 4.30 or 5 and raining and nobody could see and nobody was on the road. And so I'm like, what am I going to do? Brian Kolkman, <laughs> my buddy Brian, because our hearts are forged together. I know that the man's never going to say no to me. And I'm never going to say, oh, we love one another in the Lord. So dude, you got to help me, man. 
So we wheeled that thing out of there. You don't, you don't have to, you don't have to beg a close friend in the Lord for a sacrifice. They'll make it for you. And it's amazing. Jonathan stripped himself of his robe that was on him. He gave it to David, his armor, his belt, his sword, his bow. Jonathan gave David his sword. There's only two dudes with swords. And Jonathan gave his away. He gave David his robe. He gave him something that was meaningful to him. He gave him the robe that identified him as the son of the king. He gave him the robe that identified him as the heir to the throne. I mean, think about Joseph and that coat of many colors that his father gave him that identified him as the special son. This is what's handed to David, the robe. Friends aren't stingy. Friends in the Lord's aren't, aren't stingy with their stuff, with their possessions. Jonathan gave him his bow, gave him his belt. He said, he's saying, whatever you need, whatever I can do for you, I believe in you, I love you, I am with you. And it makes me think, like, friends in the Lord don't keep score. That's why the scripture is like, deal with your stuff. Adversity happens, trouble happens, go. Sort it out. Forgive one another. Make peace. You help wherever's needed. It's unselfish, this friendship. But not only that, it's a loyal defense. When we see these guys, they, they gave a loyal defense before others. They would defend each other before others' voices. Like go to chapter 19. Read to you verse 4 and 5. Saul's on this tirade now. He's like convinced he needs to kill David. Verse 4 says, And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul his father, and he said, Let not the king sin against David, because he has not sinned against you, because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it, Dad. Dad, you rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? John, Jonathan's not a fair weather fr uh, friend here. He's going to stand up to his father. This is what Christian friendship looks like between men. You don't talk bad about one another. Saul was the king. He was Jonathan's father. He'd, and, and he had determined to be David's enemy, which means this, Jonathan should have been David's enemy. But Jonathan stood up to his father and said, Dad, you're wrong. You're wrong about that man. That man has a heart against, for God. He has, he's not sinned against you. And Jonathan warned his dad, Dad, you're in danger, man. You're in danger of sinning against the Lord as you suggest these things. And Saul, here's Saul, he's like ready to kill David. And, and I just love this picture. Like Jonathan and Saul, this is the nitty gritty of friend, friendship. Jonathan stood in defense of his friend even to his father, even to the king. Because a true friend does that. They bring loyal defense. They also do this. They give each other freedom to be themselves. Look at, look at chapter 20. Chapter 20, verse 41. The background of this is, this is that Saul had continued in his determination to kill David, and so David was on the run. And David took up residence in this little town and Saul found out that he was there. And so he brought the army to besiege the city so that he could kill David. 
So David sought the Lord. He said, Lord, what do I do? If I stay in the city, will these, will these people hand me over? And they, the Lord said, yeah, they're going to hand you over. So David got out of Dodge and he took, he took off and he's hiding again and Jonathan knows where he is and Jonathan uh, comes to him. Oh man, maybe I'm telling the wrong part of this story. I'm telling the wrong part of this story. I'm going to back up. No, I'll tell this part and then we'll come back. What I want to tell you is that a friend is a source of encouragement. It's in chapter 23. Chapter 23. David's been living like a vagabond and he's just escaped the city and Saul's continuing to obsess with his destruction. And in verse 15 of chapter 23, we read this. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life and David was in the wilderness at Ziph at Horash. In verse 16, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horash and strengthened his hand in God. There's a hitman after him. His name's Saul. David's hiding. Any moment, the enemy could get him. Murderous hatred of Saul had been haunting David. He'd been on the run for a long time. And what does Jonathan do? He like encourages his friend in the Lord. You know how good it is, right? When, when a man comes beside you and encourages you in the Lord, says, I understand. I get it. I, I understand you having those thoughts. I understand you having those fears. I get maybe you want to be on the run. I have those struggles. Let's get up. Let's go. Onward for Jesus. We're going to get through this. Let me pray with you. A friend like Jonathan is a, a friend who's a source of encouragement. But also this, a fr friend, friends give themselves the freedom to, to be themselves. And I love, the, I love the story in chapter 20. This is where I went the wrong, wrong direction there. The story was this, that David wanted to go home to his father for a holiday. And he was expected to be at Saul's table. And he's like, your dad wants to kill me. And Jonathan's like, okay, well, you go. And I'll tell dad that you're away. And then um, based on his reaction, we'll know if he's out to kill you. And they plan to meet in this archer's field and break down what had happened. And, and the story went like this, that, that they had this cue that the little archer helper kid, was gonna, they were going to fire arrows. And based on where the arrows landed, he would direct David. So David was hiding in the field. Jonathan goes to shoot the arrows. And we... Pick up in verse 41, it says this. As soon as the boy had gone, it's the little kid who's collecting the arrows. As soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap, fell on his face to the ground and bowed down three times and they kissed one another and wept with one another. David weeping the most. There's nothing silly about this relationship. It makes me angry that people would suggest this. These are friends who love the Lord. They're brokenhearted. They're devastated. And a true friend will let you weep, man. A true friend will say, my heart breaks with yours. I'm sorry this is going on. You can bleed here, man. You can bleed and it's safe. And sometimes your friends, guys, they don't need verses quoted at them. They need you to just, just let them bleed, man. And tend to the wound. Get the sutures out. Pray for them. Weep with them. Sometimes you need a friend you can complain to. Sometimes you need somebody you can hurt with. 
with whom you can be yourself, with whom you can bear your heart and go, this is my heart right now. I can't share my heart anywhere. This is what's going on. It's good, man. I'm with you. I weep with you. So I look at these two guys. I go, man, they loved each other. They were bound in covenant with one another. They encouraged each other. They honored one another. I think about their love for one another. Uh, David demonstrated the qualities that Jonathan loved. Faith, courage, humility, desire to honor God, willing to take risks. Jonathan found none of that stuff in his father. It's interesting. What his father had laid upon him was shame. What his father laid upon him was disgrace. His father stole credit from him. As time went on, his relationship with his dad busted down. You know, it's interesting. I think the same is probably true of David and his father. You know, Samuel comes to anoint one of the sons of Jesse as king. And they go through all the boys and he's like, isn't there anybody else? Oh yeah, there's one I forgot about out on the field. Like what's with that? David had a, a tense relationship with his dad that was off. And God brought these two men into a friendship where they could fulfill a role that their fathers hadn't fulfilled for each other. Godly men who had the qualities that encouraged one another. They, they were bound together in covenant. Jonathan sealed the deal. He gave David his robe. Jonathan was essentially acknowledging, David, you're going to be king. Well, he was acknowledging that's why he took off his robe. He said, you're going to be the king, not me. And by covenanting, covenanting with him, Jonathan was doing this. He was saying, David, I am going to do everything I can to ensure that the kingdom lands firmly and squarely in your hands. Think about this for a moment. How did David learn how to become a king? Could it be that Jonathan... Could it be that Jonathan took him under his wing and said, I'm going to teach you the responsibilities of kingship. I'm going to teach you its rights. I'm going to, I'm going to teach you about it. When all Israel, when in all of Israel only Jonathan and, and Saul had a sword, David had a sling, and he gave, Jonathan gave the sword to David, let me ask you this, who taught David how to be proficient with a sword? The warrior. Who showed him how to handle the sword? When, when David and Jonathan agreed to meet in an archer's field where archery was practiced, why did they pick that spot? Could it be that Jonathan taught David how to use the bow? How to properly handle the bow? How to use the bow in warfare? And they would meet there often and practice regularly. In many ways, like I said, like Jonathan was the missing father, the true father that David needed. And, and he was an older man, I think. Maybe 25 years between them. He said, man, I love you. I lo it was like a father-son relationship. Dear friends, I'm going to, Jonathan's like, David, I am going to invest my life in you. It's discipleship. And in return, David covenanted. He said, when the, when the kingdom's established in my hands, I won't wipe out your family. I'll look after your sons. And we know this, the story of, of Mephibosheth, Saul's son, and how he ate at David's table. A couple more things. Sorry, I'm a little long. But it's good, isn't it? 
These men encouraged each other. And, and true friendship, like I said, survives trials and tests because you love and you trust one another and you love and you trust the Lord. There was, there was a time when they didn't see eye to eye that the scripture tells us about. When David says, your father's trying to kill me. And John said, no, not my dad. And Jonathan couldn't reconcile that it was true about his dad. So he defended Saul. And when Jonathan discovered that the truth that Saul was trying to, trying to kill not only David, he actually tried to kill Jonathan for defending David. And, and, it, and like I said, Solomon wrote these words, a friend loves at all times, a brother is born for adversity. And I actually wonder if Solomon was thinking about his dad, Jonathan. And the last time that they saw each other was at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 23 that, that we read there where it says that, David, that Jonathan strengthened David's hand in the Lord. That was the last time the two of them ever saw each other. Jonathan dies in the next chapter. He's killed on Mount Gilboa along with his father and brothers in war. And these men honored each other. After Jonathan's death, David, we'll wrap here. Turn to, turn to 2 Samuel. David wrote a beautiful eulogy for Saul and Jonathan in chapter 1, in the second half of chapter 1. And I'm going to read part of it to you. I'm going to read verse 17 and 18, and I'm going to read it from the King James Version. So if you've got a King James Version, just pumping your tires right now. It says this, 17 and 18. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. Also, he bade them teach the children of Judah to use the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. David, after Jonathan dies, writes this eulogy and he instructs the men of Judah, men, you are to teach your children, you are to teach your sons how to use the bow. Now, it's 2,500 years ago. You didn't get to go to Cabela's. I'll take that one. Okay, that's not how it worked. You didn't pick out the pretty colors, you know, when you're picking out your arrows. You, you had to go into the woods, select a piece, of, piece for that bow. You had to hand pick out the the wood for the arrows and collect feathers from birds and put it all together and then teach the, teach the skill. And it was a process that took time to make an archery set, you know, to pull that together and to teach a, a young man how to use it. And David did that. He made it law. He instructed, you have to teach your sons how to use the bow. And I think it was because Jonathan taught him how to use the bow. They honored one another. And look at, here's the application. It's just real simple. Be a good friend. In the family of God, this family, be a good friend. Determine, determine this. Make this decision in your heart. I'm going to be a Jonathan. I'm going to find who God is calling me to invest in and I'm going to invest And I would just ask this for our guys, and it's for the women too. I'm so thankful that Tuesday and that Thursday starting, and I just, look at who's God knit your heart to in the body of Christ? Who's he knit your heart to? Who do you love that you look in this body and say, man, I love the heart that I see in that person. I love the desire I see, they see for the kingdom. 
Men, for you, I would tell you, love that man. Love him. Women, the application is the same. Love that woman. Invest. We're very blessed to be in the kingdom of God and to have a king, King, king Jesus, whom we can serve. We pray for you this morning. Lord.